You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 111, introducing the book of Ezekiel. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Pretty good, Trey. Well, good. Uh, well, looks like Ezekiel won out. So Ezekiel got 42, and you said, what, Jeremiah got 40? Yeah, I know it was, it was kind of close. I, I expected Jeremiah to win, but Ezekiel pulled it out. Yeah, by a large margin, almost 43%. Versus thirty three percent for Jeremiah. Oh wow! So oh ten percent, almost ten percent. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, majority wins. So there we go. And, and Ezekiel's fun. You know, it's, it's it's not like any of the candidates would have been disappointing. But uh, now we know, and probably we know what the next book we could probably cover after Ezekiel, which, which would be Jeremiah. Maybe we'll do that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we'll yeah. do another vote. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever sort of hits us when we get to that point. So do you, do you have uh, an idea of how you're going to break down the book of Ezekiel? How many chapters you're going to cover per episode and all that good stuff? Yeah, I, I don't yet. I mean, some of them are going to just be one. Like what we're going to do today is what we did with Leviticus, you know, just introduce the book. Uh, those who listen to, well, we did it with Acts too a little bit, but more so with Leviticus. Just sort of, you know, giving people the lay of the land, you know, who is this guy, what, what, you know, what's the book about, you know, that sort of thing. How does it flow? Some of the, the major things that will run into it, the, some of the topics, you know, that scholars, you know, sort of zero in on with respect to Ezekiel. So we'll introduce the book today. And then uh, next week, you know, when we have uh, the next episode, that'll be chapter one, you know, just, just, you know, because of all the stuff that's in there, the, the famous Ezekiel's vision. So even though, Ezekiel's first vision really is the first couple of chapters, first really three. I think, you know, we'll probably just zero in on the first one because of the the famous vision and then just sort of go from there. But, you know, sometimes it'll be one chapter, sometimes it'll be two or three. I just don't really know yet. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's just jump in here uh, to, again, introducing the book, just like we did with Leviticus. We just want to give you the lay of the land in this episode, and then we'll jump into it you know, more properly uh, next time. So the prophet Ezekiel, again, I think most people are going to be familiar with the basics of who he he was. I mean, he gets taken captive in what was, you know, what is known as the second phase of Judah's exile. Of course, Judah, of course, the southern kingdom, the uh, two tribes there, Judah and Benjamin. They, that was actually taken captive in three stages. So again, if you had a, like a Bible intro class or maybe something in, in church that you got into the book of Ezekiel a little bit, did a little backgrounding, you're going to know this, that Judah was taken captive in three stages, roughly 605 and then 598, 597 or so, and then 586 BC is the third and last stage. And that's when Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. Uh, there's no disagreement that Ezekiel was taken captive in the second phase. So roughly he winds up in Babylon around 598, 597 BC. That second phase is was the first time that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, actually captured Jerusalem. The first of the three phases wasn't a capture of the city, but the second one was goes in there, captures the city, doesn't destroy it, but he takes a lot of the, what, you know, you'd think of as the elite, sort of the uh, intelligentsia back with him to Babylon. You know, a lot of priests, a lot of, you know, scholars, a lot of scribes, again, some of the the upper crusty elite, you know, royal family, administrative you know, people that, again, would have had serious responsibilities administratively in the government, those those sorts of people. And that's described actually in Second Kings twenty four verses ten through seventeen. This this second wave, the second phase. So that's when Ezekiel winds up uh, in Babylon. He's taken there again, as we know from the beginning of the book. He tells us, you know, where he's at uh, specifically. He is he and the captives are resettled uh, near at a site on the river Kivar, as we learn from the first chapter. Uh, archaeologically speaking, it's a place called Tel Abib, A-B-I-B, which means Mound of the Flood. 
And that's actually one of the uh, tributary canals of the Euphrates River. It's near the city of Nippur. Again, for those of you who are sort of interested in the geography, but that's where they wind up. That's where the, the book opens when they're at this place. Now, Ezekiel himself was a priest. We learned that in the first chapter as well, not only you know where he's at, but who he was a little bit. So in verse 3, you know, this gets mentioned. He has a priestly background. So that means he has a good command of the Torah. That's obvious. You know, if you're a priest, you're going to know the Torah pretty well and its laws. Now, that little tidbit is actually going to become relevant in various places in the book, especially where Ezekiel is asked to do something that would have been a violation uh, of the laws of the Torah for priests, you know, some of the, the rules of purity. That'll actually come into play in different parts of the book. So it's, it's nice to know that up front, again, that he uh, again knows the law very well. And he's going to be asked to do certain things and say certain things that that's really going to matter. He was married, and we don't find this out in the first chapter, but later in the book, in Ezekiel 24, uh, verse 18, we do find out that he had a wife. And and that verse specifies the fact that God tells him that his wife is going to die. uh, And it's going to be by God's hand. And he's commanded by God not to mourn, which becomes a sign act, a symbol of the sudden destruction of God's sanctuary in Jerusalem and God's own lack of remorse at that event. So he, he just point blank, you know, tells Ezekiel, this is what's going to happen. You know, I'll just read a little bit of it. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I'm about to take delight, take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. You shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your, your tears run down. He can't, he's forbidden to even cry, sigh, but not aloud, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and your shoes and your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. I mean, you don't do these these mourning things that people would typically do. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and, even, and that evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. So Ezekiel is is noteworthy for, again, being asked or commanded to do unusual things. And this happens to be one of them. But it gives us this biographical note that he was, in fact, married, but his wife dies in the course of his ministry. Now, from the time of his call, which we get again in the early chapters, until the final fall of Jerusalem in 586, again, the the third and last wave of captivity for Judah, uh, Ezekiel is sort of portrayed in the book as kind of a recluse in his own house. He has bouts of dumbness, you know, where he can't speak, and paralysis where he can't move. Uh, The people, of course, view him as sort of a nutcase, you know, kind of an oddity. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be too flippant about it, but you know, I think he would have also almost been viewed as entertainment. Like, okay, let's go over to Ezekiel's house and see what he's doing today. You know, what what, what goofy thing is he going to do? You know, we're going to find him naked. Is he going to be rolling around the dirt? You know, is he going to be shaving his head? I mean, who knows what the guy is going to be doing? But he, he's commanded to do a series of of really unusual things, but they all have a purpose. Again, it's not just this random sort of God zapping him and he just sort of goes crazy. They all have a a specific purpose uh, in the book, and those are typically explained when they happen. And again, Ezekiel's sort of a famous book for this kind of thing. Uh, Ezekiel received his call roughly, again, you know, shortly after he, you know, found himself taken captive in Babylon. Uh, His ministry ends around 571 BC. Now, Ezekiel actually dates the beginning of his call, uh, you know, in this, this statement about in the fifth year of, you know, the, the particular king. Let me just go back and, and read it. Well, there's actually a, a, a couple of numbers in the first few verses that scholars debate about. But in verse two, he says, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So, if the captivity, the second wave happened in 598, then if it's the fifth year, well, okay, 593. So he's he's in you know Babylon for a few years before God comes to him and calls him as a prophet. And if you look at the chronology of the book, uh, his ministry is going to end you know a little more than 20 years later, roughly 571 BC. So it's going to end after. Jerusalem is actually destroyed. The temple is destroyed. That's going to happen during the course of his ministry while he's in Babylon. And again, some of the, the crazy things he's supposed to do are actually going to telegraph events that are happening back in Jerusalem. So he's sort of a, he, he's, you know, 
I don't want to say he's he's like the TV version of what's happening back there, but he'll he'll do symbolic things to inform the people of what's going on. And again, that that's very deliberate on on God's part to have him do certain things. It's not just random. It's not again to draw attention, you know, without a purpose. Now, the Anchor Bible Dictionary uh, has this line in it uh, about in, in, in its entry on Ezekiel. It says. Legend says that he, Ezekiel, is buried in a tomb at Al-Kifl, near the modern town of Hila in Iraq, not far from the site of ancient Babylon. It has been a Jewish shrine of some note. Now that, against a, a lot of these, these places, you know, have been in the news recently for being, you know, destroyed and pillaged, you know, by ISIS and whatnot, but Again, it, it's it's sort of a local legend. We don't know that it's the case if this was actually the, the the tomb of Ezekiel or not. But people, I thought, you know, might be interested in that because of again recent events uh, in our day happening in the same region. Now let's talk a little bit about the book itself. So we know again the basics of who Ezekiel is. He's a priest, knows the law. He's asked to do a bunch of really odd things. Uh, some people would just say crazy things by God as sort of, again, these visualizations of what's happening or what God's thinking or God's attitude toward his people, toward what's going on historically. In terms of of how the book presents Ezekiel's ministry and his life and all this stuff, this book, conveniently enough, is actually one of the most highly structured books among the biblical prophets, the classical prophets. Now, that term, classical prophets, uh, refers to the writing prophets. Again, if you had a little, maybe a little Bible college training about the prophets, or if you were fortunate enough to actually venture into the Old Testament in church, you would know that there's a distinction between the non-writing prophets, people like Elijah and Elisha. They didn't write any books. There's no book named after them in the Old Testament or credited to them, and the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, again, the the minor prophets, so on and so forth. So among the classical prophets, and we'll include the minor prophets here, even though they're so short, this book has a very carefully laid out structure to it. It's clearly divided into three major sections. And the sections actually reflect different parts or different stages of Ezekiel's own ministry. For instance, in first section would be roughly chapters 1 through 24. And all of those chapters are characterized by oracles, sermons, statements, utterances of judgment against Judah and the southern kingdom and against Jerusalem. So in chapters 1 to 24, that's the overarching theme of all of it, judgment against Judah and Jerusalem again, for their sins, for their apostasy, for their their spiritual crimes. Then you get chapters 25 through 32, and those are oracles against foreign nations, foreign powers, Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, Babylon, so on and so forth. Chapters 33 through 48 are the, is the third, you know, comprises the third and, and last section of the book. And here you get oracles of future restoration and salvation for Judah. And in some places, Israel is named as well. Now, we've, we've already sort of covered uh, some of this turf about how the concept of the exile, uh, again, is, is fairly clear enough. You know, the, you have the northern kingdom being taken into captivity or scattered to the wind in 722, the, the, the ten tribes. And then you get the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, taken later. In the, the again the series of three uh, captivities or three you know invasions if you want to call them that three stages so that's easy enough to understand but we've already you know spent time when we're talking about eschatology on the concept that well for the Israelite and later for the Jew the exile isn't really over until all of the twelve tribes are affected positively until all of the twelve tribes are sort of gathered back into the family of God, you know, in, in, into right relationship with God. So that becomes an issue here because in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel's living and prophesying, the northern tribes, the, the, the ten tribes are already history. They're already toast. 
So what he's doing, uh, again, is, is you know, really ministering to the southern kingdom, the, the last two that remain. Nevertheless, in this last section, chapters 33 through 48, he actually does mention both Judah and Israel in terms of restoration and hope, uh, you know, salvation, you know, being brought back from exile. And that'll become important in, in, in different passages because it'll take us back into this discussion of, well, for a Jew, what, you know, all these regathering passages that, again, lots of modern Christians like to say, oh, that's 1948. Well, is, is that really, again, what, what they were thinking? Does, does it have to be a national entity, a national state reestablished? Or is it, again, the re- return of members of all the tribes back into right relationship with God? You know, and, and so others would point to things like Acts chapter 2. You know the the events at Pentecost and the founding of the church, which was circumcision neutral, because Ezekiel again, and he's not the only prophet, will also link you know the return from exile, the exile being over, also with the Gentiles. Now you don't get as much of that in Ezekiel as you do in a book like Isaiah, but there's a consistent theology being put forth here. So there are parts of Ezekiel where we'll you know venture back into eschatology, but you have these nice three sections. Ezekiel, Oracles of Judgment Against Judah in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 24. Chapters 25 through 32, he gives it to the foreign powers, rails on them. And then 33 through 48, it's about hope and restoration. Now, the division or structuring is clearly intentional. It casts Ezekiel as preaching judgment up until the final fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So, Chapter 32 and the transition to 33, the hope and restoration message, is actually going to chronologically coincide with the fall of Jerusalem. That that, that sort of brings the whole captivity sequence to a a disastrous end. And then from that point on, Ezekiel's message changes. And that's important spiritually, theologically, because God is saying, look, I meant it when I said you were going to get what was coming to you, and sure enough, you did. But that's not the end of the story. Now, you've seen that I was serious here. Well, I'm just as serious about restoration. And so there's there's a lot going on in Ezekiel that is chronologically marked in in these sorts of ways. You can see these transitions. Now, Anchor Bible Dictionary, let me just quote a little bit, a little section from that again about uh, the structuring here. Uh, ABD says, quote, The oracles of judgment help Israel understand why God let the city of Jerusalem fall and the old kingdom end for good. The oracles directed to pagan nations serve as a prelude to the establishment of a new kingdom of Israel by announcing punishment on all who oppress God's people. And the oracles of consolation, again, that third section, focus on the new order that God will establish for Israel. This last section has two major movements. One, a promise of a new exodus and conquest of the land in chapters 33 through 39. And two, a new division of the land and rebuilding of the holy city in chapters 40 through 48. So again, this is all very neatly presented. You say, well, well, who, who really cares? You know, well, on the one hand, it, it should be easy to follow and easy to orient yourself as you're reading the book if you know this. But I think it's important to mention for another reason, and one one that we'll, we'll hit on in another few minutes here. And that is, Ezekiel is not only one of the most structured, deliberately, intentionally structured books that are, you know, again, very obvious how the book is laid out. But it's also, therefore, you know, because of that, it's also one of the books that telegraphs an editorial hand in its creation. Now, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Again, uh, I've, I've criticized and will, of course, continue to criticize what I view as a paranormal X-Files view of inspiration. Again, that, that prophets and other you know, writers, biblical writers, sort of had their – they were zapped and their minds go blank and then they just – the spirit of God takes over their, their brain and and just sort of through automatic writing, they produce something. And then they kind of wake up, they snap out of it, and ooh, there it is, you know. And this is the way inspiration is presented because we have to have a doctrine of verbal, plenary, full inspiration. And so b- because of that, this is the way it gets presented, that, that the spirit of God has to like dispense or download or whisper or 
dictate every every word of the text and that it when it hits the the leather when it hits the paper so to speak that's just what it is it comes directly from the mouth of the spirit of god and again that's sort of a an odd way of putting things but you get the idea this is the way inspiration is presented okay ezekiel is a very loud argument that no that isn't the way it worked are we supposed to again conclude that ezekiel in real time you know, for the first X number of years, okay, if it's 593 to 586, okay, so for the first seven years of, of his ministry, he could never utter a word against a foreign nation. Well, I'm supposed to preach against Judah in Jews, Jerusalem first, and then, you know, the, the Spirit of God will direct me to preach against somebody else, and then, you know, after it's destroyed, you know, then I, I'm going to do this. I mean, did he really do this in real time? You know, is his preaching really restricted this tightly to these three major sections? I can never talk, you know, about one thing before the other one's done. Again, that's a little, it's a little silly. But if you're going to again take this X Files view of inspiration, that and the book just sort of spills out the way it's formed. That's what you have to think. And Ezekiel again is a book that is just demonstrably not that way. Uh, and, and if again, I'll, I'll hit this in another few minutes because. This is one of those books that if you're if you're a scholar, you know you're, you 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 notice again the editorial hand of lots of things in the book. And I'm you know as we go through the book in the podcast, I'm not going to be pointing all this stuff out. When it, when it's important, I will. You know when it's interesting, I will. But you know scholars spend a, a great deal of time trying to detect this activity in these seams just to to, to learn how the book was put together. And one of the most telling things is is a switch from first person to third person. And we'll get to that in, in a moment again, and it'll be a familiar illustration for those longtime listeners to the podcast. But this kind of thing happens in Ezekiel a lot, and, and on occasion, it, sort of understanding it becomes important for interpreting a particular passage. So I wanted to mention it here. Let's talk about um, just transition here to generally noteworthy features about the book. Ezekiel again is known, I would say, primarily for really two things, again, just on a thematic level. And that is the what scholars like to, to call the ecstatic visions okay, of Ezekiel. And what that means is, is the, uh, the instances where Ezekiel will say he was taken by the Spirit or lifted up by the Spirit or the Spirit of God comes upon him. Sort of like in a, now catch the terminology because this is, this is, You'll actually see this in the academic literature, sort of spirit possession, again, but in a, in a good sense, you know, like he's possessed by the spirit of God, and you know, to do these crazy things or whatnot. Uh, again, that doesn't account for how the book was formed and the the, the evidences for editing, and it might be sort of a, a bad characterization, just generally. You know, well, well is he really possessed? Because that I don't like the term because it conjures up you know certain you know kinds of images because of the of the dark side of of such language. But that's the way scholars will talk about it. Uh, the other thing that it's really known for thematically is is sign acts or symbolic acts, where Ezekiel is supposed to do something again a little bit crazy uh, as a visualization. But let's talk about the the visions part. I mean, Ezekiel does stand out uh, in this regard among the classical prophets, again, the major writing prophets. Uh, it's, it's very obvious. Those other books don't have nearly as much of this kind of language in them as Ezekiel does. The classical prophets generally avoid phrases like, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon me. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you won't read that in, in most other of the prophetic books. Ezekiel, however, uses it fairly frequently. So it's a marked difference between this book and other prophetic books. Generally, I would say the language indicates a divine compulsion uh, to speak or some sort of divine uh, prompting. Again, some scholars have taken the language and interpreted it like it's possession or, or some kind of trance state. Uh, again, that's disputed uh, among academics, you know, how to, how to understand a phrase like the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon me, you know, came upon me. Does that have to denote that, you know, Ezekiel sort of lost his mind or, you know, had some, some kind of, again, for lack of a better way to characterize it, some sort of 
epileptic seizure again. And you'll actually find, uh, again, some scholars who discuss this, and they'll say, well, Ezekiel probably had some medical condition like epilepsy or something, and then he you know, just thought he saw this or that. Again, those who take a more skeptical attitude toward toward the existence of God, much less God's interactivity you know, with a, with a person like a prophet, that's typically the direction they go. They'll, they'll characterize it in that way. You know, personally, I, I think that the, the parallels uh, that you could marshal from other passages make a trance state for this kind of language really unlikely. unlikely. So what I mean by that is if you actually look up some of the language used of Ezekiel, it'll actually refer elsewhere, for like in, in, in the case of Elijah. Let's use him as an example. Elijah uh, in 1 Kings 18 says here, as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, blah, 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 blah. Again, this idea of being lifted up by the spirit or seized by the spirit or taken by the spirit. If you look, if you go to Elijah's instance, you're, you're talking about geography. He is transported. He is moved from one location to another. So it's not this trance state. Now I, I, I'll grant you and there will be people who will say, well, you know, we can't take this language literally, like, like Elijah was actually physically transported. It's in his mind he was transported, so he is in some sort of trance state. Again, this is, this is why there's a debate. But I, I think if you just take, take it for what it says, and again, in, in Elijah's case, and you have other cases of this in the Old and New Testament, like with Philip uh, in, the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, where they are actually moved physically from one location to another. Okay, by the Spirit of God. It's not a trance. They're actually there, and then they're not there. They're somewhere else. So I, I personally think that, that the parallels or the, or the way this material gets talked about, I find it kind of unsatisfying if, if we're just going to say that this is all happening in the prophet's head, sort of you know, that, that kind of discussion. But again, in the academic literature, a lot of the people who are writing that sort of stuff, they, don't, uh, they either don't assign uh, reality again, to a lot of the, the, the spirit activity that you'll see in a book like Ezekiel. And so this is the direction they go in their interpretation, that it's, again, this trance-like state, it's just all happening in, in, the, in the prophet's mind. He's having some sort of seizure, there's something wrong with the brain wiring or whatever. Uh, you know, the more bizarre theories is that you know he took hallucinogens or something. You'll read this kind of thing when you read about, academically speaking, you'll read about the classical prophets. Because if you don't want to assign validity to, hey, there's actually a Holy Spirit who is a person, you know, who's part of the Godhead, or even if you're a Unitarian, this is actually a divine entity, a divine being, you know, who can actually like transport someone physically. If you're not going to go there, well, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with some of this other talk about, again, it's all, it's all happening in the brain. There's, there's, no, there's no immaterial spiritual reality here. So that's just what you're going to run into. Now, before we leave this topic, we should also point out that this language shows up in the Torah, and also you get it in the in the book of Judges, you know, this, this idea of being overcome by the Spirit. For instance, in Numbers 11, just read a couple of these examples. Uh, we read, I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. You know, this God telling, you know, Moses what he's going to do about getting people to help him. They shall bear the burden of the people with you so that they so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So is it, are we really supposed to read that? God's telling Moses, hey, you know, you know how you flip into trances a lot? Well, I'm going to do that to other people, and that'll help you. Well, you know, again, to, to me, it, the language just doesn't work. That, that doesn't work well, you know, with, again, trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, the Spirit moves the bands of the prophets in 1 Samuel 10, you know, when, when Saul is among them. They they have an ability to, to to see things or you know say things. They're you know they get visions and things like this. But and the visions actually happen again you know in in real time. There there's some there's some counterpart to it that lends you know credibility and reality uh, to what's going on. So you know in a visions case you could say okay God showed them something and that's inside their head. But it doesn't always work. Again you you have this other these other contexts these other passages where. Just to say somebody went into a trance, well, it might work one place, but doesn't really work in another. Uh, the account of Balaam uh, is, is sort of, again, noteworthy for this, you know, where Balaam is, you know, hired, you know, again, to curse the, the people of Israel and 
can't do it because God, you know, takes over the process. So you, in that episode, you get the, you know, the same kind of thing. You also get in the Balaam episode, the, uh, the, the phrasing that, uh, about setting one's face against the object of an oracle, the object of a prophecy. Ezekiel is, is one of the books where this language shows up and it really doesn't show up in other ones. You know, Ezekiel set his face against so-and-so and, and pronounced an oracle against them. Again, that material comes from, from the Torah. So it's, there's something, there's some relationship between the way things are worded in Ezekiel and the way things get worded in certain passages in the Torah. And again, there are going to be points in the book of Ezekiel where that'll be helpful. It'll just be helpful to note these parallels and, you know, it'll, it'll help us figure out what's, what's sort of happening and what maybe not, you know, is not happening. But again, if you do a lot of reading on, on classical prophets, especially if it's from someone who just doesn't want to tolerate a, an immaterial world, they're, they're, they're committed to a materialistic worldview, uh, this is what you're going to get. It's, it's all just something happening in the head. It's something physical. It's something medical. It's something psychological and whatnot. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this, what I'm commenting on here. This is a, a lengthy quotation from Anchor Bible Dictionary just to illustrate. This is how academics talk about this typically. Again, because they, they want to be so careful not to say any of this is real. <laughs> and and that, that's probably a little bit pejorative, but they want to be careful to say, to attribute any of this stuff to, to the intervention in human history or in someone's life by an actual deity. Okay, so they, they might say it's real, but it's, it's just something going on in the head. But they're, they're, they're often so careful you know, to not sound too pious or too religious or too believing that it just, it just kind of irritates me. I think you can probably tell this. But I'm gonna, here's, here's this, this passage from Anchor Bible Dictionary. Again, this is in their discussion about the book of Ezekiel. Well, listen to this. Commentators have long been troubled, <laughs> nice understatement there, about certain seeming inconsistencies between the claims for Ezekiel's historical ministry and the nature of the actual oracles in the book. One major question has centered on the personality of the prophet. There are accounts of great ecstatic visions which seem to seize the prophet, chapters 1, 8, 10, 37, 40. He speaks of the hand of God grabbing him and moving him physically, Ezekiel 37, 1, or the Spirit of God entering him in power, Ezekiel 2, verse 1. He performs symbolic actions which appear impossible or crazed by modern standards lying on his side for 390 days, that's chapter 4 or digging through a wall of his house, that's chapter 12, or swallowing a scroll in ecstasy, that's chapter 3. Many scholars have argued that he received most of his words in a trance, or showed signs of abnormal parapsychology, or even of an unbalanced mind. Still others have been troubled by the contrast between the vividness of his descriptions of Jerusalem and his knowledge of what was going on there, and the claim that he knew knew this only through prophetic revelation while in Babylon. Because I'll just stop here for a moment. There are places in Ezekiel where Ezekiel describes precisely what's going on in Jerusalem. Well, how do you do that? And you know, and, and of course, you know, nowadays, if if again you're committed to a totally, you know, or at least you gravitate toward a non-materialistic worldview. And what I mean by that is not that's not a denial that there's consciousness. It's a denial that there's deity involved. Okay, that it's some sort of psychic power. That's okay because that that's still something that's attached to your brain. We can live with that. We just can't have a deity actually doing any of this stuff. Now you'd call it remote viewing. Okay, that that sort of thing. And this is why I'm, I'm very wary of Christians using the Bible using passages about Ezekiel and other prophets to prop up certain notions like remote viewing. Okay, well, that's not, I'm, I'm not denying that, that there can be a psychic ability like this. Okay, that isn't my point. My point is you don't want to take language that's attributed to the activity of God and making it only your brain. But a lot of Christians do that for some reason, that, that they have to have a Bible proof text for this topic they're interested in, oh, remote viewing. Well, that's, that's like what Ezekiel was doing. Well, do you really want to say that? Because if you say it often enough, you're going to divorce God from the equation. You're going to eliminate, delete the Spirit. And when you delete God and the Spirit, you start deleting 
the immaterial reality. Again, you start eliminating a dualistic worldview where there's a spiritual realm, a genuine spiritual realm, and the physical realm. So back to the quotation here. ABD continues, over the last hundred years, several notable scholars have argued that Ezekiel's ministry must have taken place only in Jerusalem, at least for the period from 593 to 586. Again, that's the way they explain his descriptions of what's going on there. And the so-called Babylonian-like locale was an editorial fiction. Again, this is back to the quote, to make the book acceptable later to the exiles. However, in light of the book's unwavering insistence on Ezekiel's location in Babylon, and the strong probability of exchange of messengers between the exiles and the homeland, this seems mostly a forced exercise and has won very little critical support. So now you're reading this as, as someone who believes in, in a spiritual world, and you're thinking, oh, the, the guy who wrote this, the guy who wrote the Anchor Bible Dictionary, he must be a believer. He must, you know, he, he's a good guy now because he's saying, look, it, it's just not legitimate to say that Ezekiel was, was there in Jerusalem because that's the only way he could have gotten this information. So – the writer's denying that. And so you, you might think, well, he's, he's on the side of, of the supernaturalist. Well, not so fast. Going back to the quote, if Ezekiel was already an adult when he was sent into exile in 598, he probably knew the Jerusalem scene well. And his oracular words may well have been fueled by specific incidents reported to the exiles in Tel Abib by an occasional messenger from Jerusalem. So that's how Ezekiel got his information. Now, to sort of cover his butt, the guy ends with this sentence. This by no means rules out the further possibility that he had some parapsychic powers to envision events at a distance. In other words, don't credit it to God. You know, maybe he was a remote viewer. Okay, maybe he had parapsychic ability. That's the end of the quote. Now, again, if you're a supernaturalist, and again, I realize that this is this is a bit like like a Venn diagram, you know, like like there are events that are paranormal or you know, powers and abilities that presumably, you know, we use terms like paranormal and parapsychology for. Okay, I get that. I'm 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 friendly to the question. You know, that this is why we do our other podcast, Paranormal, you know, to to discuss topics like this. So I don't feel any inner compulsion to say that, oh, there aren't such abilities like that, because if we say that there are, then we have to dump our Bible. Okay? It's not an all-or-nothing proposition. So you know, let's just dispense with the either-or fallacy right here. What I'm saying, though, is that there is a propensity, again, to assign everything in the Bible. Miracles, they have to have a naturalistic explanation. What happens to Ezekiel? Well, that has to be remote viewing. That has to be some parapsychic ability. As though God can't do anything. Okay, we tie God's hands when we try to make these one-to-one equations. And you get that a lot in academic discussion of the prophets, even by people who, like this guy, they, they, you know, again, he, he's trying to word it in such a way where he's not, he's not making it all normal. Well, some of it might be paranormal, but, it, but it's still... It's still not a deity. It's not God doing something. It's a parapsychic ability. And that, that's, that irritates me, again, because that's just academies for I don't want my colleagues to think that I actually believe any of this stuff about the God of Israel. So that's a, that's a bit irritating. But I just want you to know, again, this the, the reason why I included the, uh, the quotation here is, is this is how stuff gets talked about. And we need to think about how we're talking about what happens to prophets, how we're talking about what they do so that on the one hand, okay, well, maybe there is, you know, maybe, maybe the, the stopping up of the Jordan river, you know, and in the days of Joshua, maybe that was due to an earthquake, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the, the river was stopped at just the right time. And then the Israelites crossed over, you know, there are people who argue for this. Oh, okay. I get it. It's still miraculous because God has to have it happen at the right time, you know. But, but again, it's this propensity to, to try to find something normal about a miracle or about a divine act to make it palatable, to make it reasonable. Well, I would suggest to you that it is reasonable that God exists. And if God exists, it's perfectly reasonable that he can actually do something. Okay, it would be unreasonable to think that he can't do anything or that he's not interested in doing anything. That would be unreasonable for an intelligent being, especially one who had great power, 
hey, we're intelligent beings and we like to do stuff. So it's not reasonable, again, to gravitate away from real-time divine activity. Again, you all know who, you know, who it is that I am. I mean, who, who's, who's the guy behind the, the microphone here? Well, that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a supernaturalist. I'm, I'm perfectly willing you know, to, to see God doing things. Again, but in the academic discourse, this is how stuff gets talked about, even among believers. Even among you know you know people you know scholars who would you know of course accept the Trinity and they're Christians and blah blah blah. Here we go with the selective supernaturalism again that I that I wrote about an unseen realm. Okay, just just so that you know, let's talk a little bit about symbolic acts. So that was again these ecstatic states. If you want to look at it that way, and again the other thing thematically the book is known for is symbolic acts. This refers to. When, uh, when Yahweh, when the God of Israel commands the prophet to do something strange and provocative, okay, uh, this, this visualization idea. Now, other prophets do things that are a little bit odd, but Ezekiel is famous or infamous for this. It happens with more frequency in this book. And the, again, the point of them is, is dramatic effect. The prophet performs the message. He doesn't just preach it verbally. He performs a message. He gives it a visualization. And typically, either before he does it or after he does the symbolic action, the interpretation, again, the, the reason he's doing it, what it means, is actually offered and explained in the text. Uh, examples would be, again, just generally, we're going to hit all these naturally as we go through the, the book and the podcast. Uh, examples would be where Ezekiel draws Jerusalem, draws the city on a brick, chapter 4. Uh, another point, he lays on his side for both 390 and 40-day increments. That's chapter 4. He shaves his head with a sword, chapter 5. Uh, he makes a directional sign to Jerusalem for the invading Babylonians in chapter 21. It's like, hey, you guys that are invading Jerusalem, this is, you know, here's the correct direction. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want you to miss the city. You know? I mean, he actually does stuff like this. Again, to, but there's a point to it. God is sending this army, and that's why they're going to show up, and that's why they're going to do what they're, what they're doing. It's a judgment. So Ezekiel, again, is just known you know, for this kind of thing, and it's, it's what makes the book interesting and, and, you know, I think to some degree popular among the prophets because it's just strange stuff. Now let's talk about a few other things. Again, we, broadly speaking here, we're talking about noteworthy features. We talked about you know, ecstatic visions and, of course, the symbolic acts, and those are the two things that are you know, mostly associated with the book broadly, you know, by a broad audience. When you get into the academic circles, uh, Ezekiel is also known for textual problems. And I'm not going to, again, for the, this isn't something that translates well to a podcast and you'd have to all be readers of Greek and Hebrew. And I, you know, I'm not going to burden any podcast episode with textual criticism. I mean, I, where, where it matters, I'll say something about it and how it, it helps or how it produces a, a resolution or a problem or whatnot. But the book of Ezekiel has a fair number uh, of difficult words uh, in them, or in it, uh, difficult or archaic grammatical forms that you won't see anywhere else. Uh, there's lots of text-critical problems. Uh, some of these will become important. Uh, for instance, in, um, you know, in, in Dan Block's article, now Dan Block wrote a very uh, noteworthy uh, commentary. It's actually a two-volume commentary on uh, the book of Ezekiel. And he actually he has a number of articles, some journal articles that are, uh, you know, relevant to the Book of Ezekiel that he you know took out of his his commentary and expanded on them. And one of them has to do with with chapter one. And chapter one has an unusual number of text critical problems. You know, things that that just don't you know seem right. There, there's variant you know, readings in the Septuagint or some other manuscript, or it has a bunch of these sort of odd grammatical elements. And he, Block actually has an article where he kind of grocery lists these things. So like, uh, just an example, for those who, who do have a little bit of Hebrew, at one point the writer will use the second person suffix, which is you or your on a noun. And then he'll use the same noun a verse later and switch the person and number. Or he'll use one grammatical form that's normal for something, and then he'll take the very same 
vocabulary item and put it into some some weird form that you know is is archaic you know old forms of hebrew hebrew is like english it's like any other language it goes through stages of development both in terms of vocabulary and in terms of grammar so why you know why does this happen in this book and because it, it happens a lot and block in chapter 1 actually says that it, he he thinks it's actually deliberate uh in that chapter because to him it it conveys the idea that this thing i'm seeing is so crazy and so awesome. I'm going to do crazy stuff as I write about it just to draw attention to the fact that I'm, I'm witnessing shock and awe. <laughs> again, I don't, I don't know if I buy that explanation, but again, just to give you an idea that, that sometimes you know, this, these kinds of things happen in the book. And when it, it becomes an issue, I'll bring it up, but this isn't you know, a discussion for you know, text critical scholars, but it's one of the things that Ezekiel's known for. And I'm bringing it up because there will be occasions as we go through the book where I say, hey, look, the way to resolve this thing, it's a text critical issue. You, you go one way or the other based upon whether you're reading the traditional Masoretic text or the Septuagint. Now, for those who've read Unseen Realm, you already know where this is going to happen in the course of our podcast, especially if you ventured out of Unseen Realm when you went to the companion website of the book, moreunseenrealm.com. The whole chat, Ezekiel 28, again, and I said in the book, you know, my view is actually the minority view in academic scholarship. Okay, I think that Ezekiel 28 is describing Eden and the cherub in Ezekiel 28 is a divine being in rebellion. That is a minority view. And the reason is text critical, because I'm sticking with the Masoretic text there. And I think, again, there's lots of things in chapter 28 that point to a Canaanite uh, rebellion motif, and we'll get to those when we get to the chapter. But other commentators go with the Septuagint. If you read Ezekiel 28 with the Septuagint, then the cherub in the garden, okay, <laughs> you know, you, 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 have, you have this odd situation where you don't have a cherub in the garden. You have you have somebody either either with you know the, the cherub, and then it, they would say, well, that that points to Adam. Who else would be in, in in the garden? And so Adam becomes the point of the pride talk in Ezekiel twenty eight. Adam becomes the focus of the, the 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 royal language, the glittering language, and all this kind of stuff. This is why you know, a lot of people will say there. Ezekiel 28 has nothing to do with Genesis 3, and it has nothing to do with Isaiah 14, the, the, the so-called you know, fall of Lucifer passage. I'm saying it has everything to do with those two chapters, but most scholars don't because they prefer the Septuagint in Ezekiel 28. I don't. I don't think there's any reason to retreat and I'm using that word deliberately because I think it is a retreat to retreat to the Septuagint to explain what's going on in Ezekiel 28. There's no reason for it at all. So when we get to that chapter, then that's a, that's a good example of how we'll get into text critical talk and how it really matters for how you read something in the book. But the book, again, is, is well known for these sorts of situations. Another thing it's, it's known for, again, that I, I brought up a few minutes earlier, was evidence of editorial work. And again, the best place to go for that is the first chapter. So let me just, again, this, this will sound familiar for a lot of you, but some of you are going to be new to this idea of editorial work in, in the Bible. How can you say the Bible was edited? Well, basically the short answer is because it was, because if you actually read it closely, you can tell. Again, inspiration is a process, not an event. It is not a paranormal event. It's a process. God used many hands to produce the final form of this thing we call the inspired word of God. It, it, it's all God. It doesn't matter if you know who touched it or you don't. Okay, you either believe that, that God is behind the process or you don't. I do. Now, let me, let me just read you the first few verses of Ezekiel 1. You can see this just point blank. Listen carefully. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kavar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, 
the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kivar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now, did you see what happened there? Did you hear it? There is a change from first person to third. That doesn't make any sense at all if it was dictated or downloaded. Okay, in the 30th year, as I was among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And then it says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. Why doesn't it say the word of the Lord came to me? Why don't we continue in the first person? Why why doesn't it say the hand of the Lord was upon me there? It says upon him. It refers to Ezekiel in the third person. So who's narrating this? Is it eyewitness testimony, first person, Ezekiel, or is it somebody else writing about Ezekiel? And the answer is, yeah, you have both of them in the same three verses. And this shows, again, that parts of the book are very evidently written by the prophet himself, and other parts are going to be written by somebody else about the events. So Ezekiel is actually going to give you a combination of first-person writing and third-person writing. And this is crystal clear evidence that someone other than Ezekiel contributed to the book and fashioned the book into the form in which we have. It's a very carefully ordered, very carefully crafted book. Three discernible sections. Each section, again, is, is its own sort of you know, real estate, uh, oracles against Jerusalem. Then you get the foreign nations, and then you get restoration and hope. It's very easy, very neatly laid out. Somebody had to do that, and somebody did do it. And so there will be passages in Ezekiel as we go through in the podcast where I will comment about, well, the best way to look at this is to recognize that you have you know some sort of addition, something that that you know was added, you know to maybe a, a sermon that Ezekiel is is preaching that you know had first person language, and here's something that's added, a thought that's added to it. There will be things like that in the book that you just have to be a careful reader and pick out, and then consider the importance or the implication of what's going on. So we'll hit a few of those as we go through. Again, I'm not. I'm not going to turn this into a, you know, a graduate school class. When I was in graduate school, one of the required courses was Ezekiel. And it's for this reason, because in grad school, they use the book to teach you about what they call redaction, which is editing. Uh, again, the deliberate techniques that writers would use to arrange material and communicate uh, certain things by virtue of those arrangements. That's, what, that's the kind of thing you do in grad school. Again, I'm not going to turn the podcast into that, but where it's important, I'll mention it. And again, you'll, you'll have a frame of reference for it. Now, lastly, uh, before we, we end uh, this overview, the other thing that, that's going to become apparent in Ezekiel is dates, is chronology. Ezekiel actually has a lot of chronological information in it. It's well known for providing a specific, pretty specific, chronology of events within the book itself, there are actually 15 different dates given in the book so that you can you just, again, follow the events of the book sequentially, which allows scholars to date the material with, you know, with, with a high degree of certainty. Uh, let me read an, another little section from Anchor Bible here about the dating issues. It says, there's a calculated series of dates which had selected oracles throughout the book. These dates fall into two major types. One is a series of seven dates that head oracles against foreign nations in chapters 25 through 32. They are tied to specific political actions on the part of enemy nations, which Ezekiel denounced at the time. Six of these head oracles uh, against Egypt, are against Egypt. They are almost certainly reliable. In other words, again, just a high degree of, of precision when it comes to helping date you know, the book itself and, and the, what's being referred to in the book. The second series of dates heads major moments in the prophet's preaching career and serves to show that the message he delivered was step-by-step step in line with God's plan as it moved inexorably through judgment, disaster, and then restoration. These also form a series of seven. Seven and seven, that's 14. Remember, I said there were 15 dates, so there's two groups of seven here. These also form a series of seven, a favorite number in Ezekiel to show completion and fullness. 
one, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and chapter 3, verse 16, mark the prophet's inaugural call. 8.1 indicates the time of the vision of the divine glory in Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 1, is more problematical, but may be tied to the beginnings of rebellion under Zedekiah. Chapter 24, verse 1, marks the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Chapter 33.21 notes the arrival of the news of the fall of Jerusalem and the start of Ezekiel's ministry of promise. Chapter 40, verse 1 signals the final vision of the new Jerusalem and its temple. Each date is later than the preceding one in the series, so that their placement gives a strong chronological ordering to the whole book. Now, the 15th date, the one outlier here, occurs in the first line of the book. And that's something we'll hit, you know, in the, in the next episode when we, we jump into chapter one, because again, there's, you know, a bit of a controversy about, you know, the date and how to understand it. But for our purposes here in this introductory overview, we're going to hit these passages that talk about the dates. We're going to see Ezekiel doing things for 390 days and 40 days and this number of days and all that sort of stuff. And there are going to be places where that's important, knowing that Ezekiel gives lots of dates, and, and he, he telegraphs, he attaches those dates to certain things he's doing and certain things happening in real time. Knowing that helps you, again, decipher what in the world the guy is talking about and what's going on. So it's a very nice book, again, for giving you that, that kind of orientation. So to end here uh, for this episode in the overview, what's, what's the takeaway? Well, the first one you already knew, Ezekiel has a lot of strange stuff in it. Again, Synax being seized by the spirit, you know, is that a trance or not? Is it something else? You know, how do we understand that? What, you know, why is he running around with no clothes on? You know, all this kind of stuff. It has a lot of strange stuff in the book, which again, makes it a little bit popular uh, if, if people ever get to it, either in personal reading or, or, or church. And that stuff isn't random. It's not there for entertainment. It's not there for, to get a laugh. It's not a laugh track. It's actually important. And we'll talk about what it signifies when we get to those, those places. Secondly, at times, correct interpretation of Ezekiel hinges on recognizing some more academic things like textual problems, archaic grammatical forms, editorial clues. Again, when it's important, I will make that part of, of a podcast episode, when it really contributes something to interpretation, as opposed to just being a point of curiosity. So again, we're going to hit some of that stuff. I, I can almost guarantee you're not going to hear that kind of thing in church or anywhere else, if you even ever get to hear the Old Testament in church. But sometimes it's really important, and we'll hit, we'll, when it is, we'll hit those, and, and I'll try to unravel it for you. And third and lastly, I alluded to this a little bit with Ezekiel 28, there are certain contexts in Ezekiel that we need to pay attention to. They're in Babylon. That's the biggest one. So there are going to be things in the book that will make sense in a Babylonian or Mesopotamian context. And the writers there, the people he's writing to are there, and Ezekiel or whoever, you know, whoever, whoever the editor was at any given point, okay, either the prophet or somebody else, the fact that they're in Mesopotamia is, could be important because they could be taking a stab at a Mesopotamian belief or a Mesopotamian God, a Mesopotamian point of, of their religion, something like that, that will lend clarity to what's going on in the text. But that's not the only context. It's not just Mesopotamia. It's not just Babylon. But you have a strong Canaanite context in certain chapters. You have a strong Phoenician context in certain chapters. So when we hit these, these places, we are going to go into uh, Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Canaanite, Phoenician religion, and again, some of this, this external material that will help us decipher what in the world Ezekiel was trying to say to his audience in their own time and space. Again, we're, we're going to pay attention to looking at Ezekiel in his own context, in the original context, because frankly, that's what we do uh, here at, at the Naked Bible Podcast. This is where we live. This is sort of the bread and butter here. And it's, it's something that I believe uh, the audience can digest and appreciate. And again, I'm not going to turn it into a classroom necessarily, but when we hit those things, we will not be afraid to get into them when they have explanatory power and when they really contribute something to the discussion. Mike, we ought to look into actually having a test for our <laughs> podcast. So you actually have to take a test. Because I know you It'll need more papers to grade. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love grading. Yes. Oh, please. I know please. how much you love grading. Put, 
put more of that on my plate. Yes. Oh yeah. No, I'm looking forward to this one. This is exciting. I, I predicted that this one would win, although Jeremiah was strong there in the polls at the beginning. Is it you seized by the spirit? In. Is, is yeah. that <laughs> Yeah. That's exactly right. So <laughs> did you remote view that? <laughs> I, I did. Absolutely. One of my visions. Oh wow. So we can talk about that on paranormal then. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm excited. Ezekiel is a favorite of people because it is so weird. And so I, yep. you know, looking forward to it. So it's going to be entertaining. I know yeah, it, it's it, not be for entertainment, stuff. but it is entertaining. Yeah. It's not like reading a genealogy or something. And you can't escape eschatology. Sorry, Mike. It, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's everywhere. <laughs> so you need to embrace it and just accept it because you know, I'll, I'll be the equal opportunity offender again. So we're used to that. All right. Well, Looking forward to chapter one next week, Mike. Uh, and then also I wanted to thank everybody uh, who gave us a review and a rating. Uh, and for those who subscribe to our podcast in the Google Play app over the last few weeks, we, we've gotten over a hundred so reviews and ratings wow. now on iTunes specifically and and uh, a bunch of new subscribers on the uh, Google Play app. And uh, we appreciate that. And, and please, again, uh, anybody else who hasn't taken the time to do that, you know, please do that. That helps us get up there in the ratings and helps other people to discover us. And Mike, the first newsletter came out. Yeah. And you know, I want to encourage people, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, please do so. I'm not just, it's not just marketing shtick here. There are things in the newsletter that I will not be posting on the blog. Now I released the first newsletter again, just to sort of make that point and illustrate, well, what, what's, what's going on in the thing. Uh, so if you want to see what one looks like, you go up to the to the website, drmsh.com, and you can find, just search for the word newsletter, and you're going to find the first one. Take a look at it. But I would encourage everybody to subscribe to the newsletter. There will be things I, I do in there, things I show you, tools for research, whatnot, you know, news items, just things I find interesting that won't get posted on the blog. So, hey, take advantage of it. You know, you get more information. Uh, we are going to again, you know, use the the email addresses and and the the information that is captured, you know, through the newsletter subscription uh, to help do something special on the forum to help connect all of you uh, together with people who are, you know, living nearby who are interested in the same stuff. Introduce you to each other. And it's all going to serve a purpose and try to build some community. So please, again, if you're interested in the content, uh, subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, I think it would not only be interesting for you, but it'll actually help, again, build some community here. And for those who sent me an email wanting to know how to change their email address, their name, or any information, uh, at the very bottom of the uh, newsletter, there's a little link that you can actually change to update your information. Or if you click to view this email into the into the web, if you scroll all the way down to the very bottom and the very fine print will be a little link there that you can change your profile, email address, name, contact information, address, all that good stuff. So that's where that stuff lives. If you're interested, gotten some emails, Mike. So yeah, good. hopefully I could answer that question in one fell swoop. And uh, again, I, I just really want to urge, we've got thousands of listeners, Mike, and uh, over a hundred plus ratings and reviews is a good start. But we can yep. certainly do better than that. So I want to encourage everybody to uh, just take just a few seconds, if you wouldn't mind, to do If you that. could, I mean, can you can you just say something about how that helps uh, raise the, I don't know what the right word is, profile awareness of, of the podcast? I mean, how, is, I mean, you've, you've explained that to me, you know, why, why this, this just helps get traffic and build the audience. So if you could say a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, right now, there's two major players. iTunes is the big granddaddy of podcast apps. There's certainly mm-hmm. tons of others. I use other apps to digest the uh, podcast myself, but uh, iTunes is the big one. So if you rate and review us uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes, it helps push uh, you know us in the rankings where other people, most people don't scroll past you know the first few rows of looking to discover new podcasts. So as mm-hmm. high up as you could get your podcast listed on iTunes, the chances are more people who will see it. And the same thing on the Google Play app. We're in the top 50. I think we're actually number 50 now, so we're hanging on by a thread. But, you know, that's a that's a big place. A lot of people do use those types of apps. And uh, and to be in the top 50 in Google Play is a pretty big deal where people, you know, there, there, there aren't any other podcasts. There's only 50 Christian and religious podcasts listed in that section on that app. So 
to, you know, the thousands others that exist aren't listed up there. So the fact that we are helps us gain more exposure and help other people find the content and, uh, Mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. So uh, I know there's tons of others. And if you use Stitcher or, or any other apps, if, if, if there's a rating ability and, and a place to leave a review, please do so there as well. And uh, just, you know, really want to start leaning on our listeners uh, to help uh, advance this ministry and try to get as many people exposed to this type of Bible study and content uh, as yeah, possible. It's just, it's just another, it's just another, I mean, people talk about word of mouth, and word of mouth is really, really important. And again, I think that's just the way we have to think about all these things, you know, reviews and, you know, stars and likes and all this sort of stuff. It's just another sort of word of mouth mechanism. And it's something you can do in seconds. So there's no reason Mm -hmm. to not do it. So we really just ask again that if you just take a few seconds to do that. Uh, And if you need help, email me at tracestrickland at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to to help you. A few people have done that. So no problem. If you need some tech help, I'm here. And uh, Mike, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't come to me for tech help. <laughs> yeah. Please. E- yeah. Well, don't email me for Bible help either. Cause I get lots of those. And I mean, I just, uh, it's Mike's department. I'm not here to, <laughs> I can't read Hebrew and Greek. Sorry guys. All right, Mike, is there anything else you'd like to discuss? No, no I think that's it. All right. Well, Just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.